Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. I'm glad you guys are hanging out, getting to know each other. The snow's falling. Looks like it's really coming down now. Hey, uh, I want to encourage you today really to grab a Bible. Every Sunday we t- encourage you to do that, but today uh, you're really going to need one. You're really going to, you need one every Sunday, but you really need one this this Sunday, because we're going we're gonna to traverse a lot of territory. Often when we study the Bible, I think one of the challenges is that we don't get to see the big picture of the Bible. And if you don't understand the big picture, the little picture really doesn't make sense. You know, when you look at the little picture, it, the little picture doesn't make sense until you back up and you kind of see the big picture. And so we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through this series. And the main message that Jesus had, he had one main message, and he said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, the kingdom of God is here. So repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. So we need to repent, we need to believe, we need to respond to that message. To repent means to pay attention. It means to turn. God is doing something new. He's beginning a new work and God's kingdom is once again available. Now we don't use that kind of language so it's distant from us. But when he says the kingdom is available, he's saying God's presence is available. Because wherever you see the word heaven, you gotta see the word God. Wherever you see the word kingdom of God, you got to see the kingdom of Jesus. This is what Jesus is bringing about, that once again, we can live under God's rule and reign, just like they did in the Garden of Eden, just like they were supposed to in the nation of Israel. They're supposed to live in God's presence under his authority and his power, because see, when God's presence shows up, things get healed. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Like, Actually, the, the prophets will talk about when God returns, his glory will cover the earth, like the waters cover the sea. And what that means is that everything that's broken will be, will be healed. Because see, in God's presence, things get made right. Marriages get made right. Affections, desires get made right. Money and relationship to money gets made right. And Jesus is saying the kingdom's now available, but here's the problem. It's available to the wrong people. At least that's what the religious leaders thought. See, Jesus was going to the wrong kinds of people, and that got him into a bit into a bit of trouble because it was disorienting. And as we jump into the Sermon on the Mount, it's very disorienting. When you really get into what he's saying, he's turning the values of the world upside down. Because see, the world values power, but it values power in a way that serves the self instead of serving others. And so if you're in a position of power, you get your cronies in power and their cronies in power and all your people in power and they kind of run the world. But Jesus says, that's not how we use power. We use power to serve others. And so if I have a resource, I use that resource to lift others up. And so the greatest is not the one that has the most people under them. The greatest is the servant of of all. Well, that kind of messes up my plan, Jesus. That messes up the world system, doesn't it? It turns things upside down. It's very disorienting. So as we jump into the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to understand it should be disorienting. There should be things you disagree with. Church, listen to me. I know we want to say, hey, I agree with everything in the Bible, but if you don't wrestle with it, if you're not honest with it, you're really not listening to it. And you need to allow the sermon to kind of disorient your life. Now, let me explain what that looks like. See, to the people that lived in the first century in Jesus' day, to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they hated Jesus. Now, they hated Jesus in many ways because they made, uh, Jesus really made their life disorienting. They turned the world upside down. Their idea of God, their idea of what it meant to obey God, to follow God, it was like, 
And some of you have experienced this. Maybe you've gone to the UK, you've gone to India. I think Japan is this way. They drive on the wrong side of the road, right? I discovered actually this morning, 36% of the world, this is, you can check it out, check out Google, 36% of the world drive on the wrong side of the road, 76 different countries. And if you've ever done that, who's actually gone, I haven't driven on the wrong side, but some of you have, some of you started there, I know, (laughs) right, some of you started there. But it's incredibly, when, when you know, you're sitting in the driver's side and you're like, wait a minute, the wheel's over here, and then certainly that left turn, it's like really disorienting because it's not what you're used to, and, and you're so used to doing it one way, and then when you get into one of those cars and, and the wheel's on the opposite side and everybody's turning the wrong way, everything in your mind's like, wait a minute, this isn't, something's wrong, and it really causes you to think. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is supposed to do. It's not just a sermon. It wasn't that cute. He talked about puppies and there were rainbows and all that kind of stuff. And I cried once. It's supposed to get you to think. It's supposed to show you and to kind of disorient your life. And so as we jump into the Sermon on the Mount today, we need to really understand the big picture. We need to understand what it's about. What is he comparing? And so often what you want to do, sometimes if you want to kind of just jump right in there and understand the big picture, you go to the end. You know, if you go to the end, sometimes the beginning makes sense. And there's some, actually some movies like that, like The Sixth Sense, that you love that. You get to the end, and you're like, what? And then you got to go watch it again. Or Shutter, what is it, Shutter Island? I think that's another one. They're all kind of creepy, but um, I can't think of a nice one <laughs> that's like that. You guys have any nice ones that, that have that? You know, you get to the end, and then you're like, wait a minute. And then you want to go back, and you want to see it again. And so we need to go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the end of the Sermon on the Mount is actually in Matthew chapter 7. It's also in Luke chapter 6. And so in Luke chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7, they both end the exact same way with three pairs of twos. Three pairs of twos. So watch this, Matthew chapter 7. So we're going to go to the end, find out who did it, and then we're going to go back to the beginning and kind of see how the, the thing worked itself out. So in conclusion, after he's taught... He says, in conclusion, in Matthew chapter 7, he's going to say this in verse 13. He's going to say there's two roads. Some of you may have heard of these roads. One's really wide, right? It's a wide path, and it says it leads to destruction. And there's a, a wide gate and a wide path. And then he says there's a narrow road and a narrow gate. Now, on the outside, they're both paths. They look the same. One's a little bit wider than the other. But the destination is radically different. On the outside, it looks the same, but there's something different between these two paths. The question is, what's the difference? As he doesn't just give us two paths, then he goes on and says, no, there's also two trees. And on the outside, you look at the trees, and they're both fruit trees. They're both bearing fruit. On the outside, they look the same. But when you actually take the fruit, one of the trees, it bears good fruit. Tastes great. I mean, it's healthy. You don't throw up afterwards. The other tree you go to and it's bad fruit. So two trees, on the outside they look the same, but what's the difference between the two? And then to make sure we got it, he does it again. He says not only are there two paths and two gates and two trees, there's two houses. And on the outside, they're built by the same builder. Uh, They look the same, they may be the same color, but one is built on a foundation of rock The other is built on a foundation of sand. On the outside, they look the same, but there's something different between the two. What's the difference? Well, that's what the sermon answers. It's answering the question, what's the difference between the two? 
And what Jesus is contrasting is not obedience and disobedience. He's not saying the people out there are on the wide path and they're heading to destruction. He doesn't say that. Now, how do we know that? Well, we're going to discover that because if you go back into the sermon, if the sermon concludes with two different ways and two different paths and two different houses, then you would assume the sermon has the same two, right? And he's not talking about the people who are out there who are disobedient. Rather, now let's jump back into the Sermon on the Mount. Let's go back into the story to Matthew chapter 5, and let's, let's ask the question, who is he talking about? And pick it up in verse 21, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Well, it's the kind of people, the people he's speaking to, are those who would have understood these words. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Now, where is that written? It's in the book of Exodus chapter 20. So he's writing to two types of people. He's speaking to two types of people, and both people agree with that commandment. Both of them say, right, uh, murdering, it's bad. But Jesus says that it's something more than murdering. There's something that I'm asking you to do that goes deeper than simply physically not taking another life. And there's two types of people, and one person doesn't physically murder, but the other doesn't spiritually murder. One person on the outside is obedient to the intent of the law. One, one is really obedient to the motive of the law. See, he's not saying there are two trees, there are two houses, there are two paths, and the really bad guys are the ones that disobey, and the really good guys are the ones that obey. Often that's how it's told to us. He's saying, no, there's two trees, there are two paths, there's two houses, and both of them obey. Both of them bear fruit. Both of them look good on the outside, but there's something that's different between them. And if you don't get the difference, you won't get God. Do you hear that? There's something different between them. And if you don't see the difference, you're not going to see God. So he goes on again. And so not only in verse 21, but watch this in verse 27, he says the same thing again. You have heard it said. Now, where did we hear it said? We heard that said in the Old Testament. He's talking to people who read their Bible. And not only read it, they want to obey it. So verse 27, you've heard it said... You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's not saying, hey, they're the bad guys on the wide path and they commit adultery and all the good people on the narrow path don't. He says, no, I'm talking to two types of people and neither one of them commit adultery. But there's something different about the two. And if you don't catch the difference, you won't understand God. Now, to make sure we get it again, watch this. He's going to do it again, verse 33. He can't stop himself. In verse 33, you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. He's not saying there are those who keep their word and there's those who don't. No, he's saying there's two types of people, and they're both good, morally good. They both keep their word. They both do what they say, but there's something different between the two. And if you don't get the difference, you're not going to get God's kingdom, and you're not going to get who God is. Now, let's keep going on, because we want to make sure this is true. Jump to chapter 6, and he starts talking about the kinds of things these people will do. So in chapter 6, verse 1, he starts talking about, and if you can just kind of look at the headings, too, he's talking about giving to the needy in, in verses six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, all the way down to chapter 4. 
And notice in there, and you can go read this. I really encourage you to read this. Hopefully this is kind of giving you a taste so that you're like, I need to read the Bible more. He's, he's talking about people who give to the needy, but he's not saying, okay, there are those bad people and they don't give to the needy, right? They're on the Brad path, they're the destruction path. And there are the good people and they give to the needy, they care for the poor. No, he says there are two people, two houses, two roads, two trees, and they both are generous towards needy people. But there's something different about the two. And if you don't get the difference, you're not gonna get... God, and you're not going to understand his kingdom. And then he goes on again. He talks about prayer in verse 5. There are two people, and both of them pray. One of them prays this way, but I tell you, I want you to pray like this. Both of them pray. Both of them give to the needy. Go on. Keep going. Chapter 6, verse 16. He talks about fasting. They're two types of people. They're two trees. On the outside, they look the same. They're both bearing fruit. They're both fasting. They're both praying. They're both giving to the needy. But one fasts like this, and another one fasts like this. And if you don't see the difference, you're not going to get God, and you're not going to understand what he's, what he's doing. So what is the difference? <laughs> right? Are you there yet? And you're like, okay, buddy, we've seen it. We get it. Okay, two trees, two paths. What's, what's the difference? Well, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And that's what the good news of the message of Jesus is, is about. You can be lost and be religious. You can be lost, meaning distant from God and very, very moral. Immorality is not the sign of not, in a sense, being distant from God. It's not that God is after good boys and girls. He's after the reformation of the heart. And the Sermon on the Mount is getting down beneath things. And the religious leaders hated it because, again, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 10, you're seeing the people that Jesus is calling to himself, and it's not the right kind of people. He's hanging out with the poor. He's hanging out with the sexually broken. He's hanging out with the unjust. He's hanging out with the broken, and he's saying to them, blessed are you. The kingdom of God is now available to you. Now, to most people in that day, they would say, no, Jesus, you, you don't understand. That's not how God works. God goes to those who have already cleaned themselves up, who have their life together, who know the Bible and are doing things, the right things. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. That's the good news of the world. This is the good news of God's kingdom. And I show up to those who do not believe God wants anything to do with them. And the first thing I say to them is blessed. The gospel is good news. See, the gospel of the kingdom of God, God's kingdom is available, is good news to everyone. And it shows up in an unexpected, it shows up in a completely unexpected way. So let's jump into this. I want to go back in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read the passage we're going to look at today. And it starts in Matthew chapter 5, right, right after the Beatitudes. And again, the Beatitudes are a list of the kinds of people that God shows up in and God wants to work through. And the list of the Beatitudes, they're not necessarily good things. Some of them are not good things. To be poor in spirit means to be a spiritual zero, to have nothing to offer God. That's not a good thing. Now, to recognize your condition before God, that may be a good thing. But he's not talking about good conditions. He's talking about these are the kinds of people that God shows up in. These are the kinds of people that God works through. So let's jump in. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 11. So you guys now see the big picture, right? Two types of people, two types of trees. What's the difference between the two? And what we're going to discover in this passage 
is that as Jesus is addressing the kingdom of God, his presence is here, God's good news is here, it changes our relationship to everything. See, the gospel and belief in the gospel, the gospel is the story of Jesus, that through faith in Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return, I now have a relationship with God, and I am welcomed in God's presence as a child. That's the good news of the gospel. And because of the good news of the kingdom, the gospel, we have a different relationship to three things. To the world, we have a different relationship to our own heart, and then finally we're going to discover in this there's a different relationship to God. So let's jump in. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, just stop for a minute. Now, let's think about the people who persecute. The people who persecute are the ones who obey the command, do not commit adultery, who obey the command to give. Because who was persecuted? Jesus. Jesus demonstrated the grace of God, and he hung out with the wrong people, and so the religious leaders, they hated him. Now, they hated him for good reasons, because in many ways... He was disoriented. He was messing up their worldview. He was changing the way that, and he was putting his teaching, we're going to discover this next week, right alongside the Old Testament. He was saying, my teaching in the Old Testament, I am just as authoritative. So there were some good reasons for the Old Testament Jews to kind of have some questions about Jesus, but think about the ones that persecute. Are they the meek? (laughs) A lot of meek people out there, right? Running people over, chasing them down. Are they the pure in heart? Are those the ones trying to gain power and put their cronies in place? Those that hunger and thirst for righteousness? Those who mourn? I mean, those mourners always messing stuff up, getting in my business, telling me what to do? No. It's the ones that think they know God, understand God, and they go out in the world representing God, but they represent God in a way that does not reflect the kingdom of God. Because who was persecuted? Who killed Jesus? It wasn't the Jews, guys, because Jesus was a Jew. And the rest of the disciples were a Jew, so that doesn't work. We've got to leave that way behind. It was the religious. It was the powerful. It was those who had something to lose. And when I talk about religion, understand religion says fundamentally this. This is an important definition. Religion says, I am what I do. So religion can be religion in a formal sense and formal religion in Christianity, but there is immorality religion. There is I don't care about God religion. What it says is I've got these laws in my life. You know, the closed-minded people are the religious people, the truly religious people, right? The people in churches, those are the closed-minded. I'm open-minded. That's called religion, folks. It's dogmatic. It has laws. It says these people are in and these people are out. Religious people, what they do is they say I am based on what I do. The gospel says, no, you are based on what God has done. Do you hear that? Guys, that's huge. That's pretty good. Took me years to even realize what that meant. I I, I am what what God has done. My identity isn't based, I don't don't carry shame because what I've done does not define me. It's my father that now defines me. I love because he first loved me. The gospel turns everything around upside down. And so when he's saying the persecuted, often those are the ones that the religious. Now, they're not only the religious, but in in that sense, they're the the ones that persecute. So let's jump in. Verse, Verse 13, 
you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Again, two types of salt, right? One type of salt, it works. One type of salt, it has lost its properties. Uh, Verse 14, two types of light. Here we go. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp, and here's this other kind of light, and put it under a basket, but rather we put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. So two types of salt, two types of light. So let's, let's kind of look into this outline, this idea that the gospel, the kingdom, it changes our relationship to the world, it changes our relationship to our own heart, and it changes our relationship to God. So here's the first idea. In verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, you're the salt of the earth because the kingdom is now available. God's presence is available. God is doing something in you and through you. What is your relationship? What is our relationship as Christians to the world? It's that of salt to the earth. Now, it's that of salt even to culture or to life. What was the main purpose of salt? Now, today it's a condiment. It's cute, right? It comes in these little granular things. It's very clean. That's not what salt was in the first century. It came in like cakes and patties. It was actually used sometimes as currency. Instead of getting paid in cash, you get paid in, I don't know, whatever the measure was, bushels, bushels, baskets of salt. And that's how you get paid. But the main purpose of salt was to preserve. So salt went into those things that were decayed or could decay. So if you had meat, now not a lot of people had meat. But if you did have meat, you would take that cake of salt, you'd, you'd put it, mix it with water, maybe you'd place it onto that meat, and it would actually begin to stop the process of decay. But see, for salt to work, where does it have to be? What does it have to be next to? That which decays, that which is decaying, that which is broken. The relationship of the Christian in the world is to go in and to heal, to stop the decay. Now, is that true? Well, let's look at Jesus. Go read the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 8. Who's the first person he touches? A leper. That's salt. Who are the people he spends time with? The unhealthy, those with demonic possessions, those whose bodies are broken. He heals a woman who has this flow of blood for 12 years. He touches the dead. Jesus is salt. He moves into that which is decaying, and he brings healing. Church, are we running away from people we're supposed to be running towards because they're on the broad path and we're on the narrow Jesus is saying, that's not the kind of fruit my tree produces. Does that mess you up a little? Messes me up. Because <laughs> I'm like, but Jesus, I don't want their junk on me. They're gonna, I'm going to get contaminated. No, you're salt, bro. You're salt. That's what salt does. Salt moves out into the world, which means salt is attracted to the brokenness of the world. When Jesus saw brokenness, what did he do? He moved towards it. When you see the brokenness of the world, 
what do you do? We just say, hey, you guys are broken. You know, get your brokenness out of my neighborhood. Take that someplace else. That's, that's the messed up. No, we need to move into that place. Salt is attracted, but it's also salt makes things better. Now, salt makes things better not because salt draws attention to itself. I've never ate, eaten, eaten, eaten uh, <laughs> corn on the cob and gone, what amazing salt. Have you, ha- have you tried this salt? This, this salt is absolutely amazing. No, you, when you put salt on corn on the cob, you say, wow, this is, this is amazing corn. Because see, salt makes things better. But it doesn't do it by drawing attention to itself, right? Hey, look at me. Look at how great I'm doing. No, just like Jesus. Jesus went out and he made things better, but not to draw attention to himself, to draw attention to his father. So what is, what is the role of a Christian to the world? It's to be like salt to the earth. And, and then second, he says, not only are we salt, but jump down that next idea. He says, you are the light of the world. Now, this is a different kind of metaphor. A city and a hill cannot be hidden. And then if you jump down to verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others. What does that mean? What is light? He explains it so that they may see your good works and glorify. Again, salt doesn't draw attention to itself, draws attention to the Father. Glorify your Father who is in heaven. What does light do? Light does expose. So this is the other side of the gospel. The gospel is grace, but it's also truth. And this does get us persecuted often. Now, salt gets us persecuted inside the church, right? When we move towards the people we're not supposed to move towards and everyone's like, he is a drunkard and a glutton and he eats with sinners and tax collectors. That happens inside. Outside the church, it's the light aspect. Because see, when a Christian walks into the world, they're supposed to reveal truth. And in revealing truth, they expose darkness. But understand, light always does that to life, not to condemnation. Do you know what I mean? Light doesn't show up to condemn. It shows up to heal. Light shows up and it gives hope. It gives joy. It gives heat. It gives life. When Jesus spoke truth, he always spoke truth to heal and to restore, even to the ones who persecuted him. Because what, how did he end his, whole, his life? Father, forgive them. They know not what they I'd be like, Jesus, they know it, dude. They're messing you up. What, what are you, who's he talking? He's talking about the religious leaders. He, t- he teaches a whole sermon in, in Luke chapter 15. Go and read it. There are two types of people gathered before Jesus, the sinners and the religious people. And the whole point of the sermon is to get the religious people to wake up and to see they're not representing God. What is our relationship to the world? It's that of salt. What is your relationship at work? It's that of salt. Move in. Don't walk away. When you see some brokenness in your neighborhood, go find out what its name is. And when you find that it's decayed, remind yourself you're supposed to get, you're supposed to get in there. You're supposed to bring healing. You're supposed to bring light. It changes our relationship to the world. Second, it changes our relationship, our relationship even to ourselves. So, so here's this idea. Let me turn the page here. The gospel changes our relationship to our own hearts. Now, jump in in the next section in chapter 5, verse 19. And and Jonah Haddad is actually going to be teaching on this next week, so I don't want to take away from what he's going to say. But verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever uh, does these commands and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying there's two types of people, and they're both in the kingdom. Now, in this case, they're both in the kingdom. There are those that obey God's law, and they follow his law, and there's those that don't at times. But they're both in the kingdom. But here's the difference between the two trees, the two houses, all that stuff. It's verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you want to know what the Sermon on the Mount is about, spend a lot of time right there. Now, that would have been a shocking statement because the scribes and the Pharisees, they made it their life to follow the rules. They were rule followers to the nth degree. And they didn't just follow the Ten Commandments. They had commandments around the commandments, around the commandments, around the commandments. They would create all these laws so that they wouldn't come close to breaking God's law. And he's saying to the poor in spirit, to the meek, to those who mourn, your righteousness has to be greater than theirs. What? And that's not possible. But again, it gets down to the difference. What's the difference between the two trees, the two houses? It's more than externals. He's saying it's about the motivations of the heart. The righteousness he's describing is it's time to put away just being good, moral boys and girls. It's time to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm moving things from the outside, and I'm taking them down below the surface to the heart. Now, how is that going to happen? Just quickly, if you, if you can jump there, or it'll be up on the screen, um, Jeremiah chapter 31 Jeremiah chapter 31 prophesies what Jesus is talking about in verse 20. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, Jeremiah is prophesying to the day when the Lord will come. And he says, behold, the day is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And now understand, that's what Jesus is doing right now. If that doesn't make sense to you, just know that that's what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 32, not like the covenant I made with their fathers... On the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer will they say to each other, uh, each one teach his neighbor, or each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. And here's the key, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Out of the experience of forgiveness comes a new heart. If you have not been forgiven to that death, you may not grasp that. But those who have been forgiven much they love a lot because they understand grace and they understand truth and they understand that God is after more than my obedience. He's after my heart and he's after my heart in such a way that I move out into the world in a way that reflects his heart to the world. So as you go through the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus says, do not commit adultery, there are those that say, well, I'm, I'm good. Never found myself in somebody else's bed, never woke up in the wrong apartment or house. I'm good. He says, no, you don't understand. There's a deeper law underneath the law, which is the value of the human body. 
The value of a man, the value of a woman, the value of the covenant of marriage. Marriage is not there to mess up your sex life. Because see, in, in our culture, we have a story. There is no God. There's no moral law. So do what makes you happy. God says, no, there is a moral law. There is a God. And if you're going to give yourself physically, but you're not going to sacrifice emotionally, that's not sex. That's broken. If you're going to promise yourself physically and show your nakedness, but not move in spiritually, emotionally, sacrificially, hey, guys, that's not sex. Just, you know, I'm not encouraging you to do this, but when you watch the movies and something sexual shows up, ask yourself, is that really beautiful? Game of Thrones, is that beautiful? I know you guys have watched it. I haven't. Actually, I haven't watched it, so I'm okay. No, I'm just <laughs> My wife knows that. She wouldn't let me watch it. It's like, no, you can't watch that. But the point is, you guys understand that? When you look at the way the world presents sex, is it really that beautiful? Is it really, is that what we want? Is that what, it's broken. And it leads to, do not commit murder. It's not enough just to, to not have a physically taken someone's life. I want you to honor the life of other others, regardless if they're of my tribe or not. I want you to honor them. What is he getting at? When the gospel shows up, it gives you a different relationship to the heart. That we're not looking at behaviors, we're looking at motives. And it's the motives that matter to God. You know what God said to the people in the Old Testament? I am so tired of your stinking sacrifices. I just want to see some mercy. The purpose of the sacrifice was to produce a heart of mercy. That's what he's saying. He's not saying stop doing what I've told you to do. He's saying you're not doing it in a way that should produce the kind of life. And I wonder in the church if that's not true of us. We're doing the right stuff, but are we producing the right life? Do we see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Is that the fruit that's growing? If the gospel is the center and Jesus' way, practicing the way of Jesus is the center, that's when it, what it's, it's going it's it's to look like. So it changes our relationship to the world. We move out of salt and light. It changes our relationship to ourselves. We're now looking at the motives of the heart, and that's why the Sermon on the Mount is such a mess, because it's going to mess down at the level of the heart. It's going to get you angry. And then finally, it changes in terms of our relationship to God. The way we, bro- we approach God has radically, radically changed. Now, just quickly, in verse 16, again, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When Jesus is describing light, he talks about light in a candle, and essentially he's talking about oil and a little wick. Now, the light isn't us. The light is given to us, and we give that light to the world. See, the light is the light of God. The salt is the salt of God. His character comes into us. This is the kingdom language, and then it works itself out through us, which means that God is with us. Which means the point of the, the gospel, the point of the kingdom is you get God. Religious people pray not because they want God. They want stuff. I want a better marriage. And it's good to pray for a better marriage. That's okay. But if you don't want God and you just want a better marriage, then you're a tree that's bearing bad fruit. The motive of the heart isn't right. You see that? Often in ministry, I get angry at God. This is kind of my turning point. About 10 years ago, I was really angry with God. I'm like, no one's doing what we're telling them. And, and you know, and I'm just, I was up on stage. It was like two in the morning. I was crying. I was on the stage. It was horrible. It was a terrible moment. And, and I almost sense God saying, did you get into this for me or for you? I went, oh, 
Sermon on the Mount. Are you, did you get into this to serve me? And see, here's what happens. When you serve the way God wants you to serve, you've got to have God. It's the only way it's going to work. If you're serving for yourself, it's not going to work. It's going to produce nasty fruit. <laughs> and the rest of the world, I'm telling you right now, they're looking at the church and they see the nasty fruit. And they're like, it's nasty. Your fruit's nasty. And God's saying, your fruit's nasty. What's the story? It's our relationship to God. Why are we doing Why do we gather here? If it's not to know God and to love God, God should say no to you and you should not like it. That's what a relationship is. It's so funny. People come to the church, well, I'm not going to a church that doesn't teach everything that I believe. It's like, really? You believe in a God that believes everything you do? Oh, maybe you're God. <laughs> right? Does that make sense? The point of the gospel is we get God. Why do people pray? Some people pray to get things. Some people pray to get God. Why do some people give to the poor? Some people give to the poor because of pride. What it, what it says about them. Some people give to the poor because they love God. Some people come to church because they want stuff or they want to be seen. Some people come to church because they want God. And they want God to work through them. The story of the kingdom is God wants to work in you and he wants to work through you. Church, hey, where are we on this, Right? This is really just kind of a heart check. Where are we? Because the good news of the gospel is not you are what you do. The good news of the gospel is you are what God has done. And if what God has done has not melted you, you're not going to understand who you are, and you're not going to understand the love of God that moves us out in the world to change the world. We've got to start with the gospel. I am so sinful that Christ had to die. It takes away pride. But I am so loved. I am so cherished. I'm so valued that Jesus was willing to die. That changes my identity, and it gives me a wealth that I can now give to the rest of the world. Do you see that? It's only when we do that the kingdom becomes clear, and our role in the world, our role with ourselves, our role with God, it starts to become clear. I'm excited about jumping through this. It's deep. It's challenging, but it will change. It will change us at the heart. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you that you bless the poor in spirit, the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, those that sit in your presence, and, and even now they feel shame. And the only thing that will take away the shame is to hear the voice of our Father say, you are blessed. Enter my kingdom. Experience my love and grace. Now go out into the world and walk in my light and truth. Father, it's in hearing your voice. You are my son. You are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. The heart changes. The heart comes alive. You breathe through the Spirit into dead bones, and, and they rise. And so I pray in Jesus' name, Father, if today someone is hearing the gospel, the good news of Christ for the first time, I pray through the power of the Spirit, you would make them alive to recognize that through Jesus, the statement has been declared, you are forgiven. Just repent, pay attention, wake up, believe. Surrender your life to the Lord and begin to follow his path. And Father, for the rest of us that are in this place of walking with you for a long time, may we truly discover what the heart of the kingdom is. It's you and it's your presence in us, healing us and then go, going out through us to heal the rest of the world. Guide us in these things. And Father, help us 
Help us to listen. And when, we, when we're frustrated with what you're saying, Lord, help us to surrender. And just even in that place of frustration and doubt, help us to trust you. And would you teach us through the Spirit in this community to see the beauty of what it looks like when we truly follow you. Help us with this in Jesus' name.